Hi, this is Eliana Dennis, the training coordinator at the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, a national leader in advancing justice and opportunity. I want to welcome you to The Witness. podcast where we bring you first-hand stories from attorneys and advocates who are on the front lines of fighting for justice for people living in poverty. The Witness is a project of the Shriver Center's Clearinghouse Community. Today's episode is the second in our new mini-series about the Shriver Center's own Racial Justice Institute, formerly the Racial Justice Training Institute. Over the past five years, the Racial Justice Training Institute has equipped more than 200 fellows from around the country to practice community-led advocacy in pursuit of racial justice. During the first ever Racial Justice Institute National Convening, we got to talk with some of the lawyers and advocates who came together from across the country. We learned about their lives, their careers, and their hopes for the future of the Racial Justice Institute. In the second episode of our RJI mini-series, we hear part one of the conversation between Alicia White, who is the Social Work Program Director of Criminal Practice at Brooklyn Defender Services, and Sheila Miller, the Supervising Paralegal at the National Immigration Law Center. Difficult for me. Oh, stop. It's the truth. Right. Are there any questions that you want asked or um let's see. I I'm very I think it's interesting to who's the most important person in your legal career. I think that I I gravitated toward that one. I also like um what worries me because I'm a worry wart mm. about the future. Um and There's also, so I'm interested, why did you go to law school? So you know, those are questions that I, I... Well, here's the interesting thing. I never did. I started, and I decided that it wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't feel that I would, I would be successful at it, and so I backed out. Um, and then I find myself right back into the middle of... of of social justice work, um, which holds my passion, but I feel there's something bigger still for me, and I just don't know that law school was it. Oh, I like that answer. That was a good answer. Too bad you weren't recording. <laughs> okay, so yeah, they're gonna edit it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So maybe I should start off by asking Sheila. Where do you work and what, in what capacity? I work at the National Immigration Law Center um, in Los Angeles. Uh, that's our national office. We also have an office in D.C. and we have offices um, around the, the globe, if you will. And I work in the capacity of, I'm part of our legal management team where I'm responsible for our paralegal division. And also I am one of the co um, the co leads of our internal racial justice initiative, where we act as um, I hate to use the term overseers because I just feel that's so not how 
I want to express myself. But we are we are responsible for managing the racial justice in, initiative, uh, including equity, racial equity, racial inclusion, um, uh, fairness, and ensuring that the work that we do within the legal department specifically take on every case only through a racial justice lens. And, um, and I'm part of the Culture Change Committee. And all of that, all, actually all of this spearheaded from the first RJI cohort that we participated in here and we took it back home and we started implementing it slowly. And I think that's what I'm most proud of is that we actually put the knowledge to work and it's continuing to grow. That's great. Yeah. So Thank you. Who has been the most important person in your career? And can you tell me about that person? Wow. Wow. I, I have a few, actually. Um, the most important person in my career, I think, that has kept me on this path is a dear friend of mine who is a social um, civil rights attorney. And we worked together when I was at the, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And he actually challenged me um, to be my greatest. And that was several years ago. And we are still friends today. And I find myself calling him whenever I am feeling as if I cannot go one step further. And he reminds me of Thurgood Marshall, Julius Chambers, um, Elaine Jones, um, gosh, um, oh, um, Plessy v. Ferguson. He takes me there every time I feel my lowest. And then he challenges me to, um, to challenge my selfishness for why I feel that way. And I keep going. And he, he is continuing in that path. He, he um, told me the story once that I, when I did share with him, um, how I felt like I needed to just walk away. He, he reminded me that he was... He was sitting in his office, and he put his feet up on the desk. And the desk was the former desk of Thurgood Marshalls. And he said, when you get there, then tell me about your, you know, your woes. So it's, it's a constant, wow. constant struggle and challenge for me. And I find myself still fighting and still getting up and still taking the hits, and still looking for greatness. I can't stop. That's because, yeah, I have a Formica desk, so I haven't, <laughs> reached, <laughs> I haven't reached that status yet. But you're getting there. I'm getting there. Yeah. Um, what are you most proudest of? I am most proudest of having the spirit of my of my elders. I, I'm most proudest of having the strength of my grandmother 
the grace of my mother and the integrity of the integrity of myself. And I couldn't have any of those things if I didn't have strong role models in my life and if I didn't have the audacity of hope that I could be, you know, that I could make them all proud. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this hurts. (laughs) No. This really hurts. I think this is, it shows that you're really processing this. And this is something that you have within you, that there's been a lot of people who have affected you profoundly. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it brings a lot of emotion to the surface. And that's okay, because that's what keeps you going. And that's what pushes you on, because the work never ends. The work never ends, and those who came before us may not have been able to see things come to fruition in their lifetime, mm-hmm. but they can through, through us, and that's yeah. why we keep pushing. I'm so sorry. No. I never thought no. I would get here. No, you're amongst friends, please. <laughs> no, you. and I mean it. Thank you. Um, What do you think the future holds? And this is almost a scary question within to to ask because of the political climate, because of what we're seeing every day Mm -hmm. in the news. But what do you feel? What do you think the future holds? And I don't know if it's within your work or for you as a professional or however you want to answer that. Thank you. I am... I worry about our future um, because of the children going up in it. And at the same token, I, um, I'm optimistic about the future because of the children going up in it. They are fierce. They are resilient. They are vocal. They are strong. They, they challenge the system that, that we all have been you know, that we've all been brought up in. And um, and I would hope that what I perceive as being um, undisputed truth and um, power, that our future will be greater than we've ever seen. Um, because we once were, Alicia, you, we once were those children that are growing up, you, that are growing up mm-hmm. today, and what I see is is power, and I'm not fearful. Um, I'm optimistic, really, but cautiously, because of the power that you're fighting against. And I just hope that I that I am around long enough to witness it, but. Um, I say welcome future. I really do. Yeah, that's great. I really do. And young people like this young woman. Yes, this beautiful young woman. Yes, because I think working in this environment, you can work anywhere you want. You can choose wherever you decide to go. But you've decided to work in an organization that channels racial justice. And it's obviously important to you, which is 
amazing because so many people mm. are much you know think about themselves rather than the bigger picture and that's just what's exciting about the future exciting about the people who are coming behind us and hopefully we've been able to learn from our elders and you guys are learning from us to carry the torch and make it to the finish line yeah yeah so but it's not about us. <laughs> um, let's see. And so you kind of said what worries you about the future. Did you mention that? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you wish that older poverty lawyers knew about the new generation of advocates? Wow. I wish... I, I wish um, I wish our matriarchs knew that one day we would be watching. We would be looking back on history to learn and and um, actually to be led into the, into the future. But every, every, every step you, every step that was taken, every challenge that was met, we were looking to you to teach us how to go further. And I think that if we had that understanding that we would, we would, we would do things, you know, um, far greater than, than, and great things have been done. But I think if we had realized that we would be at a place, even today, when we're talking about this, that all of the accomplish, accomplishments made then, we'd be talking about greater accomplishments because we'd be challenging ourselves, knowing that there was another generation coming behind us that was looking to us for answers for um, for knowledge and for the charge to go further and to grow greater. I really do. But we never know that. We never know that when we're in the present, right? We do what we feel is the best that we're doing. But are we, are we, are we doing the best or are we holding back? And if so, why are we holding back? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. Tell me, well, you kind of touched on it with the work that you're doing, um, but tell me about the race, about the race equity work that you've been doing since RJTI. How okay. this, has this changed your organization? Has it changed you and your approach to your work? That's a very good question. Um, RJTI um, and and the just being a part of this amazing opportunity to learn and to gain knowledge in this area has certainly challenged me personally, and as a result, um, it has challenged um, and it has improved upon the work that I do. And and that by that I mean when we took the knowledge back to our organization. Um, it was met with some trepidation because the language was new and foreign. And 
um, our staff didn't understand it. And we ourselves, my, my two colleagues and I, were still coming into the understanding. And I, I, I explained to them like this. I said, you know, I know what I'm feeling, and I know what I experience in my day-to-day um, interaction with colleagues. But I did not have the, the I didn't, I, I could not identify it in words, right? Implicit bias was foreign to me. I knew what I was exper- that I was experiencing that, but in order to, I, I didn't have, I feel I didn't have the, 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 not only the knowledge, but the equipment to relay that to colleagues. So when we took it back, we introduced them to just the standard terminology of racial justice and equity. That was met with, um, you know, with some pushback because rightfully so, when you have a, when you talk about uncomfortable things, um, it makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so we had a challenge, we, um, but we, we overcame it and that we enlightened everyone on the staff to what we learned here. We, um, we requested and did receive the support of our board to implement racial justice and racial equity, um, inclusion and fairness. We've changed our mission statement, which was huge, because we, we identified that what we were experiencing internally was not reflective of the external world and how they saw us. And so it was important that we aligned ourselves so that we could truthfully state in our mission statement, this is what we do. We, you know, we embrace racial equity, fairness, and inclusion, and and be proud of that statement. Um, And the work is continuing. We've had several uh, mandatory trainings in racial justice and equity. Um, We've provided safe spaces by providing, by creating a culture change committee to be charged with ensuring that that we do have this this utopian existence, if you will, around racial justice and equity, and and we make it part of our of our language. It's no longer a foreign language to us, um, and the goal is that everyone at the organization, sixty plus folks, um, will embrace this because it's important. And it's, it's helping us to move toward a movement um, organization, which is what we're looking to do. So yeah. how long, what cohort were you in? How many years ago? I was in cohort three. That was 2016. Okay. So that's only two years. That's not a lot of time. Right, right. And when we left here, we truly were on fire. Yeah. Um, and and. We made a conscious effort when we were on the plane talking about it going home. We were already in planning mode with how we were going to share this out. And, you know, the first six months, six, eight months, it was a slow start, really, because, again, it was foreign to people. And, you know, people don't really like change too much, right? It makes them uncomfortable. It makes them uncomfortable. And um, so they weren't receptive to it. But once folks begin to realize that we're all in this together, right? This isn't about name and shame. This is about identifying um, yourself and in turn helping us to identify the, the challenge, the issue. 
and that this is a safe space to be who you are. And what my constant mantra is to everyone, including myself, is look, stand in your truth, right? Whatever that is, stand in your truth. When we're in a conference room and we're in staff meetings and we're in this, we're, we're never going to achieve um, where we want to be in being a unified group unless we stand in our truth. And sometimes those truths are uncomfortable. That's but we're great. making progress when we dare ourselves to talk about it and work through it. So that's, that's what we're doing. That's great. That's, oh, thank you. that's very inspiring for other people who have come through different cohorts or the same one that you went through mm -hmm. and have um, experienced pushback or challenges within mm -hmm. their own organization. So I think that's very inspiring to hear. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, we took a huge leap of faith on that one, but yeah. we're proud we did. Yeah. Thank you. What is your, what, and I'll make this our final question. Um, what was your biggest takeaway from RJTI? Oh, the biggest takeaway for me, um, which was profound actually, was that there are other people in the world who felt and and, and who thought like I did. Because I truly thought I was in this thing alone, right? And that was huge. And, and two, it, you know, we were told this um, during the training that, you know, that this was a place where you could, it was a safe space. And I, you know, I thought, mm-hmm, that's a buzzword these days, safe mm -hmm. space, right? And I didn't put it to, to, to the challenge. I mean, I... You know, I took it for what it was, and I didn't really challenge it. But being here now in this, in this time and not seeing most of my cohorts um, for two years, I spoke with a few over the, you know, at the early start, but, but then we kind of dropped off. We left off and, and didn't. But then being here and then meeting all of you, I, it was truly, for me, it's like a family reunion, because I just feel the love and the warmth and the respect and the trust and all those things that I need to fortify me to go back home and do and, and pick up the, the baton and keep going. Um, that takeaway is huge, especially coming from someone who, you know, um, I'm, I cautiously approach anything that I do, mm -hmm. but I really feel that this is genuine and... Um, I'm, I'm going to be more present in it because it's an opportunity mm -hmm. that I fully want to benefit from. Yeah. Even you. This is the first time I met you. Yeah. And it's just like kindred spirits, yeah. you know? And, and yeah, yeah. I feel we'll always have a connection. I do too. You know, and I, I think it's really a positive thing. We may not talk every day, but right. I feel that we will always have connection, which right. is very positive. And it's it's very it, it lifts your spirit. Yes. To know that. Yes, it does. So. It gives you hope. Mm -hmm. So yes. Sheila, I want to thank you for your candor and just really your heartfelt answers. I really appreciate it. Um, RJTI is, you know, it has, there's a lot of, 
of work to be done. But I think as long as there are people like you who are involved in it and bringing the word back, it's going to go far. Thank so, you for thank saying you. that. Okay. That's so sweet. Yeah, I so truly mean kind. it. Coming up next on The Witness. No, that's right. I, I didn't start out wanting to be a legal aid lawyer. Um, I, I wanted to do trial work, and so I, I got involved with child support, ran out of law school, or I had some immediate uh, court hearings that developed uh, into prosecutor's office, eventually into uh, private practice for about five years, uh, litigation practice, and then spent a couple years with the Jesuits, and the Jesuits told me, go be a legal aid lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this mini-series on the Racial Justice Institute. Once again, this has been Aliana Dennis from the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law. This episode was recorded and produced by Jesse Dixon, the training and engagement vista at the Shriver Center. We'd like to extend a special thanks to the RJI cohort members for sharing their stories and allowing us to record at the convening. We hope you'll continue to join us for The Witness. We'd also like to invite you to join us for the Advocacy Exchange, our monthly conversations with advocates advancing change. Those are hosted live through YouTube each month. You can find both the Advocacy Exchange and The Witness on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. To learn more about the podcast and the Clearinghouse community, go to povertylaw.org slash clearinghouse. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.